programmers and community members. For more original podcast series and to listen back to past episodes, go to cgsw.com and click on the podcast tab or go to the CGSW app and use the talk filter when you search. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Conspiracy culture. It's a distraction machine. Conspiracy influencers may get the facts wrong, but they often get the feelings right. But the thing about getting the facts wrong and the feelings right, those elites are sucking people dry. Their labor, their time, their security, their data. The Davos elite aren't eating our children, as some seriously claim that they are, but they are eating our children's future, and that is plenty bad. That's Naomi Klein, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Naomi Klein on conspiracy culture. Conspiracy, conspiracy culture, conspiracy theories. Just saying those words can make some people cringe and others to embrace them. Conspiracy theories are as old as the hills, but today... Thanks to social media algorithms that push users toward ever-emotional, fact-adverse content, it's never been easier for wild, implausible ideas and hate to go viral. It's a rabbit hole that detracts attention from predatory economic policies that have created a gargantuan gap in wealth and power. Instead of focusing on what elites are actually doing, People are diverted into cultural wars about all-gender bathrooms, anti-racist education, non-white immigrants, LGBTQ athletes, which are all part of a deep state cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who control the world. Conspiracy culture makes the ruling class secure in knowing societal anger isn't aimed at them. Our guest today is Naomi Klein. She's a leading Canadian author, social activist, and filmmaker. She's a professor in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia and the founding co-director of UBC's Center for Climate Justice. She's a columnist for The Guardian. She's the award-winning author of such books as No Logo and The Shock Doctrine. Her latest book is Doppelganger. She spoke at Socialism 2023 in Chicago on September 3rd. And now, Naomi Klein. You've created a space for us to share our experiences, our truths with one another, to inspire each other, and most of all, most critically, to strategize with one another. So being here is wonderful. It's also a little uncanny. Uncanny in the sense that it feels very familiar, but also a little bit altered, strange, different. The last time I was at Socialism, just over four years ago, 
And the title of our plenary then was Care and Repair, the Revolutionary Democratic Power of a Global Green New Deal. Now, I still believe in that, still work on that, research it, do that work. But it's a pretty different topic than what I'm talking about tonight, which is the pulsing world of fantastical far-right conspiracies, its relationship to liberal abandonments, and how the left can and must respond. And this change feels significant to me. It feels significant because it points to the fact that we are not the same people that we were four years ago. None of us. The world has changed, and those changes have changed us. And our opponents have changed too, which is what I'll be discussing today, in ways I believe we must seek to understand. The only lasting truth is change, Octavia Butler wrote. Nostalgia, trying to recapture a wave that has long since crashed, is a fool's errand. In 2020, our dear friend Arundhati Roy told us something I think we all remember, that the pandemic was a portal, that it was so cataclysmic that it would necessarily take us somewhere new. She pointed out that the somewhere could be better based on that ethos of care and repair that we gathered to discuss those years before. And I'm willing to bet that virtually every single one of you worked your butts off to try to bring about that more beautiful and just future in the years since we have seen each other. Many of you began the pandemic working full throttle for Bernie. Is that right? A few of you? <laughs> and then many of you pivoted to fighting for permanent debt cancellation, permanent eviction bans, the right to housing, police defunding, some of you gave your all to pushing the Biden administration to take, the, take climate action inspired by the Green New Deal. I think it's fair to assume that most everybody here marched your feet off raw in the uprising for black lives in the summer of 2020. I'll bet many of you marched again in the global Palestine dem solidarity demonstrations in the spring of 2021, inspired by the Sheikh Jarrah resistance to forced expulsion and the subsequent attack on Gaza, one of so many. Now, if you, like me, are here from Canada, a few Canadians here? I'm willing to bet that you were part of the outpouring of solidarity and also grieving, supporting indigenous communities who confirmed the presence of unmarked children's graves on the sites of former so-called residential schools, graves that the communities always knew were there. Of course, all of this movement labor continues, but I think it is worth pausing to recall that these were moments when a great many of us felt in our hearts and in our spirits that something big was about to change. I know I felt that way on the Bernie campaign in the summer of 2020, and even in the early months of the pandemic when so many people were re-examining how they lived, right? And when the pandemic acted as an unveiling for so many of the shadow lands that support the people who were fortunate enough to be locked down. Did it change? Angela Davis put the tension 
of the moment like this. In many ways, nothing has changed at all, but at the same time, everything has changed. In these effervescent moments, right, when suddenly we find ourselves surrounded by millions of people, right, we saw how much latent support exists for transformational visions of a radically different world, a world based on those principles of caring for one another and the earth and making reparations for the centuries of damage done to both. We found new comrades. We shifted the discourse, as they say, and not just the discourse. Workplaces got organized. Contracts got ratified. Police got kicked out of schools. I could go on and list many of these unsung victories. But I think it's also true that many of us would agree that this is not a moment for cheerleading or self-congratulation for the left. Because we are through the pandemic's portal, even though the virus is still with us. And I don't think that we much like the scenery. The new landscape is objectively more perilous, more monstrous than the one left behind, which I don't need to tell you was no picnic to begin with. And if we are to, to, to fight for a better world in this new place, then I think we need to understand its terrain a little bit better, its contours a little better. I think we need to map it. So I'm going to try to do that a little bit. Some of the things that are front of mind, obviously, millions of people have died from COVID globally, more than a million right here in the U.S. And policymakers and politicians tell us that we should all get comfortable with more culling of the most vulnerable. We now have saws embedded in buoys on the border with Mexico, skies choked with rancid smoke in city after city, incinerated cities and towns, most recently in the Haina, poison drugs cutting down lives mid-breath in their thousands. We see police budgets heavier with new instruments of death, supremacists at the helm in India, in Italy, in Israel, banging at the gates in the U.S., waves after waves of evictions, wave after wave of extinctions. Some call this necropolitics, others social murder. Whatever you call it, we are in the teeth of a machinery that shrugs at, chooses not to prevent, or actively encourages mass death, a politics that spreads deadening through the culture that runs the risk of making the living feel dead, flat, unmoved, unresponsive to attacks. Now, some of you might be asking yourselves about now, what is she doing? (laughs) Why is she listing off so many terrible things? And the answer is, well, I have also changed. And the changed me is committed to trying to create and hold space for left sadness, for our disappointments, for our heartbreaks, for comrades we lost too soon. The great Egyptian revolutionary and political theorist, Ale Abed El-Fatah, who is still languishing behind bars after 12 years in Egypt, says, you have not yet been defeated. True. But we are injured, we are hurt, some impaired, some, like Allah, far more hurt than others. 
And this is true not only of us as individuals, but I would argue also of our movements. The dreams that we once dreamed so boldly in public are a little bit damaged. And the injured state goes beyond the individual, beyond the social movements. As the great disability justice theorist Sonara Taylor reminds us, the planet, our shared home, is also injured. Like so many humans and other than human life forms, the lands are scarred, charred, thirsty, poisoned, slipping, sliding, falling. One thing I know to be true is that grief and trauma denied and unexpressed do not disappear. They will instead find new ways to express themselves. Only the ways will be twisted and warped and directed at the wrong, wrong targets. We cannot afford that, not in our individual bodies and not in our movement bodies. Now, many of you will have heard the famous quote by Samuel Beckett, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. We use it on the left to console one another about our political disappointments. But how will we fail better if we do not make time to examine why we failed last time? Without rancor, as free as possible from interpersonal denunciation, with compassion, with love, but with as much honesty as we can bear. And I'm not arguing that we should stop everything and just do this inner work because the attacks never stop and that is not an option. But I do think that we must make time and collective space. I'm not talking here about personal therapy, although that's fine. I'm talking about collective space to actually feel our griefs and losses and those disappointments because that is how we heal, that is how we recover, that is how we get stronger. And stronger we must be because we, all of us, are needed. The radical left is needed. It is needed in fighting form. It is needed to combat the far right and the web of fantastical conspiracies that have taken over the political discourse with startling speed. Now, before I go deeper into those conspiratorial worlds, I want to acknowledge that as a leftist, this is complicated for me. And I think some of you understand why. When radical and anti-establishment writers and scholars attempt to analyze the underlying systems that built and uphold power in our world, including the proven existence of covert operations to eliminate threats to those systems, it is common to get dismissed as conspiracy theorists. It's happened to everyone. It's happened to me. In truth, it is one of the most battle-worn tactics used to bury and marginalize ideas that are inconvenient to those who wield economic and political power or who feel personally attacked by anti-corporate, anti-capitalist, or anti-racist analyses because the critiques implicate them. You know, we saw this very prominently with the, with the way the, the, the media responded to Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's manufacturing consent, right? It's a conspiracy theory. Every serious left-wing analyst of power has faced this smear. So let's draw a sharp distinction between, one, 
Honest efforts to expose the real conspiracies that have always been part of capitalism, from price-fixing and corporate cover-ups to the CIA's long history of covert ops and dirty tricks, mostly against revolutionaries at home and abroad. And two, dishonest conspiracy fabulous and online influencers spreading sensationalist, unproven, and often contradictory theories for clout and cash and political power. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about far-right conspiracy theories, think Jewish space lasers, and the like. So in my new book, I call the dynamic the doppelganger effect. I started thinking about doppelgangers a lot in the first year of the pandemic because, well, it was 2020, and I was stuck at home, and so I was online way too much because where else was I going to be? When I went online, I had this very strange experience because I would invariably be greeted in those early pandemic months by people screaming at me or thanking me or expressing their pity for me about things I had said and done, only it wasn't me. It was her, my doppelganger, (laughs) which is to say a person who I have been perennially confused and conflated with for many years now. Another author who writes books critical of elite power named Naomi, Naomi Wolf. She'll be familiar to Gen Xers in the room. Now, the reason why I got interested in my particular doppelganger is because during the pandemic, she started acting very strangely, kind of like a doppelganger of herself, of her former self. And so very many people, other than her, also started acting strangely in this period. And I'm sure you may be making a list uh, in your mind of people who seem to have done that during the pandemic, right? Spreading all kinds of medical misinformation about the virus, about masking, about lockdowns, about vaccines, about vaccine verification apps. She was not so much a conspiracy theorist uh, as a conspiracy influencer, right? It's really conspiracy without a theory because the theories are um, constantly contradicting each other, right? Like COVID is a bioweapon. No, it's a cold. Don't worry about it. Don't wear a mask, right? Um, It's the vaccine that's tracking you. No, it's the app that's tracking you, right? Like it's all the Chinese Communist Party social credit system that's coming to the West. That was a big one. So that that was something that my doppelganger said a lot. And Not surprisingly, there was a big audience for this on the right, particularly on Fox News, coming from a former, you know, famous feminist, former advisor to Al Gore, very connected to the Democratic Party. If you're willing to say that a vaccine verification app is actually bringing tyranny to the United States, well, you'll get an audience with Tucker Carlson for that. So suddenly she was on Tucker's show, she was a regular on Steve Bannon's show, and lesser figures of their ilk. And it started to get more and more bizarre and uncanny for me. Here's what I mean. I distinctly remember a moment in the spring of 2021 when she was making the rounds on Fox and she was saying something that sounded a little like the argument I made in my 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, about abuses of power undercover of various kinds of emergencies, except with the facts and evidence carefully removed and coming to panic-inducing conclusions that I would never support. For one example, a couple of months after Donald Trump was finally scraped out of the White House, she told Tucker Carlson that the Biden administration was, under the, quote, guise of a medical emergency, using 
quote, emergency orders to strip us of our rights, our rights to privacy, rights to assembly, rights to worship, all the rights the Constitution guarantees, and it was all a plot, it seemed, by the Chinese. Now, it's hard to describe how I felt watching the clip. Uh, A little like she had taken my ideas, fed them into one of those powerful Vitamix blenders, added some tropical fruit, and then shared the shot, the, the, the um, thought puree with Tucker Carlson, who nodded vehemently. He then served it to his viewers as a kind of palate cleanser between the usual red meat servings of great replacement theory and schools are turning your kids trans. Um, meanwhile, Wolf's new followers started to hound me online about why I had sold out to the globalists and was duping the public into believing that masks, vaccines, and restrictions on indoor gathering were legitimate public health measures amidst mass death, as opposed to the pretext for a worldwide shock doctrine. I think she's been got at. Someone whose handle is Ricky Baby 321 concluded, telling Wolf. I have relegated Naomi Klein to the position of being the other Naomi. Now, this continues to happen daily, and I have to tell you, it's a slightly out-of-body experience to be harangued about your alleged misunderstanding of your own ideas while being told that another Naomi is a better version of you than you are. (laughs) The situation was so weird that I just could not help but get interested in it interested in what it means to have a doppelganger. Because in mythology and literature, from Dostoevsky to Ursula Le Guin, doubles and doppelgangers are often seen as warnings or omens. And I got interested in all of these scrambled political signals that she seemed to be a part of, these kind of crossover stars, liberal stars, suddenly showing up on Fox. And I thought maybe by studying her and her new pals, I could understand this world we were in through COVID's portal. I started to watch my doppelganger and her new, the movements that she was a part of with a kind of anthropological curiosity. I thought that maybe it would help me understand the derangements of our moment. I see her kind of like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, leading down the rabbit hole, or what I call the mirror world, um, where she now hangs out with Steve Bannon, and who Bannon refers to as the War Room Posse on his podcast, The War Room. Now, what I noticed through that looking glass is that the shock doctrine is far from the only left-wing idea for which the right is creating a kind of twisted doppelganger. There are all kinds of strange appropriations and mimicries that go on in there. I'm sure some of you remember the white parents shouting, I can't breathe about mask mandates, just months after, racial just- after demonstrators in the racial justice uprisings shouted, I can't breathe, in rage and protest about the murder of George Floyd. And they appropriated that black liberation slogan, even as these same people voted for candidates promising to balloon police budgets so that there would be more people for whom these three words might well be their last. And those were some of the same people who we saw holding up placards that said, my body, my choice, 
um, about refusing to get vaccinated, but said nothing at all or cheered when the right to safe abortion was stripped in state after state. In Canada, one of the symbols of the movement calling for justice for Indigenous survivors of the residential school system is the orange T-shirt with a slogan that says, Every Child Matters. And wouldn't you know it, a group of anti-vax moms, white moms, decided it would be a good idea to sell orange workout tank tops that declared that the vaccines were Canada's second genocide. And once again, many who have been part of these same COVID denial movements are now turning their energies towards denying the reality of Indigenous genocide, the truths of unmarked graves. And I want to recognize that this is very likely triggering for survivors. But some of these denialists uh, not long ago actually showed up at the site of a former residential school where the unmarked graves were identified with shovels saying they were there to do their own research. Now, this pattern is rampant. On the one hand, appropriation and trivialization of precious language and symbols used to fight brutal state violence and cover-ups. And on the other hand, aggressive attacks on those very movements, including the pro-cop renaissance, the abortion bans, the wave of book banning, and other attempts to make knowing true history an illegal act. To gain a better understanding of where this is all going, I started to listen to Bannon rather religiously. It started off just when my doppelganger was on, but then it was like, it went beyond that. At a certain point, I couldn't get his theme song out of my head. So yeah, I did the work. I listened to Steve Bannon, so you didn't have to. Um, And I was struck over and over again by the way he took issues that had previously been the political territory of the right, appropriated them, and then mixed them up with all kinds of very dangerous ideas. To put it bluntly, what he seemed to be doing was creating a kind of twisted doppelganger of the left. For instance, he loved to have my doppelganger on to talk about why vaccine apps would bring in tyranny by tech. And he folded this into a basket of issues called Big Tech Warfare, which, let's be honest, could well be a title of a session at Socialism 2023 about drone warfare and border violence and worker surveillance and online censorship of dissident voices from Palestine to Turkey. But in Bannon's world, it's not about any of that. It's about vaccines and social media companies suspending the accounts of high-profile conservatives. And it's also about transhumanism. In fact, he has a dedicated, quote-unquote, transhumanism correspondent whose sole role appears to be to scare listeners with accounts of the many ways that technology companies dream of an upgraded humanity with implants and robotics and gene splicing. Now, I think this deserves our attention because this is Bannon's skill as a strategist. He looks at the issues that are being abandoned by the center-left, by the Democrats, um, and he looks at the people that have been abandoned by the Democrats, and he said, come over here. I'm going to solve your problems for you. Um, And then he does a kind of a mix and match, and he did it with a lot of workers uh, in 2016 who, who had voted for the Democrats again and again, 
promising that they were going to do something about the free trade deals that had gutted their communities, and they didn't. And then when Trump started talking about it, he got, he got, he got an ear. So this is Bannon's skill. It's how he helped Trump get elected in 2016, and it is how he is trying to get him re-elected in 2024. So I realize this may be my weirdest book, but we are in weird times, and we have to pay attention to the weirdness. He has, um, in, with this transhumanism and all of this tech anxiety, he has identified a neglected issue with partisan appeal again. You're listening to Naomi Klein on Conspiracy Culture. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Many of us are concerned about the dehumanizing impacts of tech on workers created, treated as extensions of machines, not to mention the dystopian possibilities of a future in which the rich can buy genetic upgrades for themselves and their kids. Now, this is a crossover issue because many conservatives oppose this because they believe that it interferes with God's plan, right? So you've got both sides. And most importantly, just as he knew about free trade, Bannon knows that the Democrats aren't doing much of anything about anybody's tech concerns from data thievery to surveillance because the revolving door with Silicon Valley is spinning too fast. So a lot of people are going to be attracted to anyone who seems to be doing something, even if it's counterfeit, even if it is a charade. Bannon has recognized similar, and here I'm using Bannon as a stand-in for a whole constellation of lesser-known figures, okay, who, for, for whom he is very much an intellectual leader, like it or not. He recognized something similar that was happening with big pharma. Drug companies, price gouging and profiteering is a classic left issue. It was an animating part of Bernie's platform, and many here continue to fight for universal public health care and freedom from medical debt. But I think if we're honest, there was not a robust left response to the many ways that the healthcare industry profiteered off the pandemic's back, including the outrageous patents that should never have been allowed to be placed on vaccines that were developed and bulk, bulk purchased exclusively with public money. We grumbled and tweeted, yes, and some did a lot more and really did try to organize campaigns around this. But did we shut down cities like the Canadian truckers did? <laughs> did we do it to demand pharmacare and public health care and an end to global vaccine apartheid? Certainly many mainstream liberal liberals had nothing to say about it except get your vax and in Fauci we trust. More fertile political ground was seeded, and Bannon became the one taking on Big Pharma's greed, or seeming to. Of course, it's always through this twisted doppelganger mirror, which is not about the real scandals that we know and can prove, but is about this idea that the vaccines are tracking you, it's a plot to cull us, and so on. On his show, Bannon sometimes plays, and this is the part that really got me scared, he sometimes plays audio montages of MSNBC and CNN shows 
being brought to you by Pfizer. So he'll just cut it all together. It'll say like, Anderson Cooper, brought to you by Pfizer. The clear implication being that these shows cannot be trusted because they are in the pay of these companies. It's rule by, and this is a quote, rule by the wealthy for the wealthy against you until you wake up. Now, when he does this, it strikes me that he sounds like a lot of us. Um, But as always in the nearer world, nothing is as it seems. So there are many political stars on the right who are following this playbook. The political scientists William Callison and Quinn Slobidian have termed this strange coming together of what I call the far right and the far out. They term it diagonalism. And they point out that despite the fact that it takes some elements from the left, including the New Age left and some of this anti-corporate critique, it invariably in country after country leans hard right. They promise a mix and match of bringing back factory jobs that pay family-supporting wages. These are people like J.D. Vance, Carrie Lake, building the border wall, fighting the toxic drug supply, liberating speech from big tech, banning the woke curricula, and taking on the globalists, which is often code word for the Jews. So that tends to be the kind of stew that gets cooked together. Very similar versions of this political diagonalism have taken root uh, in many countries, from Sweden to Brazil to Italy. And we should not be surprised that this mix and match of anti-corporate stances with highly xenophobic nationalisms is resonating. Many of us here, the older ones, were part of the internationalist left movements that protested outside meetings of the World Trade Organization, the World Economic Forum in Davos, G8 summits, and the International Monetary Fund, exposing their very real roles in undermining democracies and advancing the interests of transnational capital. In the United States, at the turn of the millennium, we held counter-conventions outside both major parties for being beholden to corporate donors and serving the rich rather than the people who voted them into office. Much of this turned into the energy behind Occupy Wall Street and then behind Bernie, and that coursed through various indigenous-led battles against new oil and gas projects, and now against Cop City. But our movements faced severe state repression, and they also made many mistakes. And obviously, we never won power. And now we find ourselves in this strange place, where left slogans against oligarchic rule are being appropriated by the hard right and turned into these sinister doppelgangers of themselves. The structural critiques of capitalism are gone, and in their place are discombobulated conspiracy theories that somehow frame deregulated capitalism as communism in disguise. This trend is perfectly distilled by Giorgia Malone in Italy, the country's first female prime minister as of October 22, and the leader of the party Fratelli d'Italia, which has deep fascist roots in the the country. Melone was an early partner in Steve Bannon's international populist project, uh, where he's brought together different far-right parties uh, to strategize. Melone is a good student. She threads her speeches with pop culture references and rails against a system that reduces everyone to consumers. She also declares in uh, a supposed rebuke to woke ideology, woke in quotes, 
I am a woman, I am a mother, I am Italian, I am Christian, as if anybody is telling her she's not allowed to be these things. Watching her meteoric rise, I was reminded of how different Italy was in the summer of 2001, when the ultra-globalization movement reached its highest point in Europe, drawing a million people, a million people, to the streets of Genoa during the G8 summit to protest corporate attacks on democracy, as well as the effects of rampant consumerism. That movement came from the left. It was young Italians alongside farmers and trade unionists. They defended labor rights as well as migrant rights, and they took pride in their country's distinct culture. But in a pattern that repeated in many countries, left-wing parties in Italy lost their confidence after the September 11 attacks, which was almost immediately after the Genoa protests, um, and the attendant security and surveillance crackdowns. And the legacy of that faltering is now undeniable. Today, it is Melone denouncing a system in which everyone is, in, is reduced to being what she calls a, quote, perfect consumer slave, only instead of offering an analysis of capital, a system that must enclose all aspects of life inside the market in order to mine them as new profit centers, she blames trans people, immigrants, secularists, internationalism, and the left for the hollow, hollowing out at the core of capitalism. And while she rails against, quote, big financial speculators, she has no policies to rein them in, only attacks on Italy's meager unemployment protections. Bannon isn't offering his listeners any real alternatives to corporate predation either. He's just fleecing them in more small time ways, telling them to buy precious metals and disaster-ready meals. He adopts many of the arguments of the anti-war left to oppose ballooning U.S. military spending, accusing the, quote, cartel ruling Washington of being in the pocket of the military-industrial complex. And then he does everything he can to aim that same sprawling complex at China, which is the surest route to World War III. Still, you can't blame a strategist for being strategic, and it's highly strategic to pick up the resonant issues that your opponents have carelessly left unattended. The more I immersed myself in the worlds that my doppelganger now inhabits, the more I started to feel that the doppelganger effect was generalizing. Issues that we on the left had once championed full-throated and in the streets had gone dormant in far too many spaces, and now they were being usurped, taken over by their twisted doubles in the mirror world. So I guess what I'm saying to you here is that I'm not the only one with a doppelganger. The left, the socialist anti-capitalist left, also has a doppelganger. It calls itself populism. Bannon likes to call it inclusive nationalism. He sometimes calls it MAGA plus. It includes quite a few people who once moved in liberal and even left circles and are now working hand in glove with the movement's true leaders, Bannon, Carlson, Melone, Orban, the list goes on. By saying they are the left's doppelganger, I am not saying they are the same as us or equivalent to us or flip sides of the same coin as the centrists like to claim. This is not a both sides argument, nor is it some kind of nonsense horseshoe theory. I am saying we are connected to them in that they feed off of our setbacks and defeats at the hands of the liberal state 
And they also feed off of our silences, missteps, and failures of generosity, however understandable they may be. It isn't their only source of power, of course. They also feed off white and Christian supremacy and logics, off racial resentments. But if we want to understand why they are surging in the way that they are, why if we want to understand how right-wing conspiracy culture is redrawing maps in country after country, I think we need to look at the vacuum created by decades of often successful campaigns to crush the left. And also the vacuums created by ways that we on the left have crushed ourselves without anyone's help. As I said earlier, in mythology and literature, the arrival of one's doppelganger is often seen as a message or a warning that something needs the protagonist's attention, that they are in danger. They must understand the message or be subsumed. Well, my friends, my case to you is that the left is getting doppelganged, and we need to pay close attention. We need to heed these ominous messages. So with my remaining time, I want to offer a few more observations that I hope might inform how we pay attention, some of the things I've learned along the way. As I see it, there is a really clear dialectic in conspiracy culture with three main players. First, there is liberal and neoliberal power with its myriad betrayals, hypocrisies, and planned miseries. Second, there is the left and our relative weakness and tentativeness during the past two years. Third, there is the ascendant right, opportunistically feeding off of both, feeding off of the rage generated by those liberal abandonments and feeding off of the resonances of left issues and framings that have been insufficiently deployed and embodied in the culture. Put a little differently, liberalism created the demand, the market, if you will, for both socialism and barbarism, as Rosa warned us. And and now, as then, barbarism is ascendant. One of the most important points I'd like to share about what I have learned by studying my own doppelganger is that conspiracy influencers may get the facts wrong, but they often get the feelings right. And I'll give you a few examples from the sort of far-right conspiracy world. Take QAnon, which is, you know, at the heart of it, there's this off-the-wall claim that elites are harvesting the young for their lifeblood, also known as adrenochrome, so that these elites can stay young forever. Nope, not true. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing about getting the facts wrong and the feelings right. Those elites are sucking people dry. Their labor, their time, their security, their data. The Davos elite aren't eating our children, as some seriously claim that they are, but they are eating our children's future, and that is plenty bad. QAnon believers imagine secret tunnels underneath pizza parlors in Central Park, the better to traffic children. This, too, is fantasy, but there are tunnels, literal shadowlands under several major cities, and they do house and hide the poor, the sick, the discarded. Under the flashing lights of Las Vegas, hundreds, even thousands of people really do live in a sprawling network of storm tunnels. This is what I mean by getting the facts wrong but the feelings right. Their stories, which 
are always kind of cribbed from Hollywood blockbuster movies, capture the feeling of living in a world with Shadowlands, the feeling that every human misery is somebody else's profit, the feeling of being exhausted by predation and extraction, the feeling that important truths are being hidden. That's what they're, that's, the, that's at the heart of the story. The word for the system driving these feelings starts with C. But if no one ever taught you how capitalism works and instead told you it was all about freedom and sunshine and Big Macs and playing by the rules to get the life you deserve, then it's easy to see how you might confuse it with another C word, conspiracy. There's something else that the conspiratorial right is tapping into that I think we should understand or try to. At the heart of the QAnon cosmology, as well as a lot of the more recent spin-offs of QAnon, because it's got lots of arms, at the heart of it is a sensational fantasy of justice, otherwise known as the great storm or the great awakening when the, quote, white hats suddenly arrest all the evil-doing pedophiles and Satanists and thieves and send them to Gitmo. Now, it's kind of touchingly naive since, as the late cultural theorist Mark Fisher put it, does anyone really think things would improve if we replace the whole managerial and banking class with a whole new set of better people? But you know what? I get the appeal. It sure beats having to watch Michelle Obama sharing candy with George W. Bush <laughs> or hearing the knowing laughs of the audience when Bush slipped up and denounced the wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq, I mean Ukraine, as he did last year. (laughs) This raises an urgent question. Do mainstream liberals have a vision of justice and accountability? There is the persistent dream that Donald Trump will finally be locked away for one or more of his crimes. But beyond that, is anyone else going to be held accountable for the decisions that have brought us to this brink? What is the plan for seizing the assets of the companies fueling the climate crisis, for instance? It's absurd to hear MAGA Republicans describe the various show trials underway in the House as the new church committee, a reference, as some of you know, to the Senate Select Committee convened in 1975 and chaired by Democratic Senator Frank Church to investigate some of the intelligence world's most notorious dirty tricks at home and abroad. But what did Democrats do when they controlled the House to investigate the ways that intelligence agencies have cooperated with tech giants to invade privacy and surveil us in countless ways, or to pardon whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange? If the hashtag <clears throat> if the hashtag resistance has no vision for justice, and it does not, we can hardly be surprised to see the impulse for justice resurface in warped form in conspiracy land. So these are just some of the ways that liberal abandonments and abdications set the table for the rise of MAGA+. Plus. Another key point that I think is helpful to understand, conspiracy culture, and here I'm not talking about theories, but this whole culture of swirling conspiracy, it's a distraction machine, diverting attention away from the economic policies, deregulation, privatization, austerity, that have stratified wealth so cataclysmically in the neoliberal era. 
People like Bannon rile up anger at the Davos elites, at big tech, at big pharma, but the rage never seems to actually reach those targets. Instead, it gets redirected into these culture wars about anti-racist education, all-gender bathrooms, the great replacement panic directed at black people, much more, all of this is much more than a culture war. It's an actual war. Meanwhile, the billionaires who bankroll the whole charade are safe in the knowledge that the fury coursing through our culture isn't coming for them, which is why I think that people like Elon Musk and Donald Trump love conspiracy theories, right? Like if you're at the top of the pyramid, it's great to have a distraction machine pointing people in all of these different directions. It taps into anti-establishment fury while shifting the attention away from the scandals that we know about and that have already been proven with in painstaking detail. So instead, and this is one of the things you notice, the real scandal is always off in the distance. It's always off on the horizon. It's always about to be proven, right? The election was really stolen. We're going to prove it. The vaccines really are killing babies and doctors. We're about to prove it. And so we're not looking at these policies that have created mass death, and we know it. Another aspect of conspiracy culture that makes it appealing to elites is that it leaves capitalist logics intact in a very specific way. Because when you make these claims about these conspiracies, they're always about individuals, right? Like at the heart of uh, the liberal story, um, there's the individual hero. But at the heart of conspiracy culture, there's the individual villain, right? It's Fauci, it's Gates, it's Soros, right? And it's this fantasy that if we just got rid of this small group of individualism, of individuals, then capitalism would be all right. Which brings us back to the role of the socialist left. For me, and I know for many of you, the reason to study and read and write about economic and social systems and to attempt to identify their underlying patterns is because this is sense-making and it is stabilizing. This kind of system-based work is akin to laying a strong foundation for a building. Once it's in place, everything that follows will be sturdier. But without that foundation, nothing will be safe from a strong gust of wind. Yes, our world is still confusing after we understand how power and capital work, but it's not incomprehensible. Even conspiracy theories are, even conspiracies are not incomprehensible. What we know is that, as Fisher told us, much of what is packaged as conspiracy today is merely, and this is Fisher's term, the ruling class showing class solidarity. By which he meant that power and wealth conspire to protect themselves. It happens in public and it happens in private. It happens under the spotlight and it happens in the shadows. An economic order that contains inequalities as extreme as ours, in which the vanity rockets of billionaires sail over seas of human misery, is its own kind of depravity. And that level of injustice reproduces more depravity as a matter of course. But there is a difference between a system doing what it was designed to do, no matter the costs, and even if it takes the occasional dirty trick, and secret cabals of nefarious individuals interfering with an otherwise fair and just democracy, which is the story that you'll hear on Steve Bannon's show. This is one of the core reasons for the left to exist, obviously to organize, 
but also to provide a structural analysis of wealth and power that brings order and rigor to the prevailing and correct sense that society is rigged against the majority and that important truths are being hidden behind pat political rhetoric because we cannot change what we do not understand and because the system is rigged and most people are indeed getting badly screwed but without a firm understanding of capitalism's drive to find new profit sources to enclose and extract and without an understanding of how race was created to rationalize the system's most extreme depravities, many will imagine that there is a cabal of uniquely nefarious individuals pulling the the strings. In short, we have our work cut out for us, including political education, which starts with fighting those book bans and attacks on teachers and librarians. because we need our kids to be free to learn. My final message is a simple one. The reason we need to understand how right-wing conspiracists are cobbling together a Frankenstein-like doppelganger of the left is not so that we have yet another reason to beat ourselves up. We need to understand it so that we can fight it. More than that, because neoliberalism's cruelties created the conditions for fascism's resurgence, A resurgent anti-capitalist left is the only force that can successfully fight it. Not content moderators, not fact checkers, not liberal think tanks or data analysts, us. The unabashedly socialist movements represented in this room, anti-racist, eco-feminist, trans-inclusive, democratic socialist movements. Not as a posture to adopt online, or as a particular combination of descriptors to attach to our identities out of some sense that doing so will make us safe and pure, but as a lens through which to understand the world, as the basis to organize and grow our ranks, and as the horizon to move towards. You've heard me say it before, politics hates a vacuum. And if we do not fill the vacuum with credible hope of improving the myriad hardships and debasements of capital, that capitalism has unleashed, someone else is going to fill it with hate. And to bring it around to where I started, this is why we have to get strong and do that hard healing grief work and that hard coalition work and that rigorous mapping work of seeing where we are now through the pandemic's portal. Because what we know from studying the most murderous moments in modern history is that every story of triumph for the fascist right is also a story of fragmentation, sectarianism, and stubborn refusal to make strategic alliances on the anti-fascist left. Now is the time to pledge to ourselves and one another that we will not repeat those mistakes because the world is on fire and it's not good enough to fail better. We need to beat these You were just listening to Naomi Klein on Conspiracy Culture. She spoke at Socialism 2023 in Chicago on September 3rd. Naomi Klein is professor in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia. Her articles appear in leading newspapers and magazines around the world. Her latest book is Doppelganger. 
This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Michael Parenti, Angela Davis, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, Chris Hedges, and Vandana Shiva. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Naomi Klein on Conspiracy Culture, and for her new book, Doppelganger, call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Anthony Arnov. Joich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.